we don't want them all to be the same baked biscuits coming out of the oven. We really want them to be different. But the classrooms and the whole architecture is not inviting this kind of uh, teaching. Welcome to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark, Scandinavia's smallest island nation. I'm your host, James Clasper, and in this episode, I talk to the directors of two extraordinary new documentaries about children growing up in Copenhagen. Later on, I meet the director of a film set in one of the city's most notorious neighbourhoods and discuss why she deliberately avoided mentioning its gang violence and why we need a more nuanced debate in our politics, culture and cinema. But first, we're heading across town to Amma and in particular to a little green patch of land which for 10 glorious weeks was turned into a kind of classroom for 47 children. CPH Docs is one of the world's largest documentary film festivals and a highlight of Copenhagen's cultural calendar. The festival programme this year ranged from new works by major directors such as Ai Weiwei, Alex Gibney and Errol Morris to exciting new talent, and from large-scale theatrical releases to smaller works sitting somewhere between cinema and art. But one film that caught my eye was filmed in an overgrown building site at the northern tip of Amma. That's where 47 children from the nearby Green Free School were set free for 10 weeks last summer and tasked with establishing a new society. The award-winning Danish director Fia Ambo was there with her camera and the result was her astonishing documentary Rediscovery or in Danish Genopdelsen. Can you hear me? Can you feel me? I have something I would like to teach you. Something that has been lost through generations, which you must rediscover. I sat down with Fee during CPH Docs, and we began by talking about the Green Free School, which Fee helped found in 2013. Children attend the school from the age of six right through to ninth grade, and though in many respects it's like a normal school, there are some key differences. We founded the school because we wanted to make a school that provides learning for a sustainable generation. So we wanted the kids to be more outside and to learn crafts and to um, spend a lot of energy going from idea to actual action. We wanted them to be able to uh, be part of this tr huge transformation that we're all going to go through, even though we still think that it's not going to happen and climate change is only something that's happening somewhere else. It's already happened, and we might as well educate our kids to to go into this transformation with bravery and open hearts and um, yeah, empathy. This then is the context within which 47 of the school's pupils were given free reign over the course of 10 weeks last summer to take part in a kind of democratic experiment. The location they got given? An oasis of green space in the heart of industrial northern Amma. It was owned by one of the school's parents, and Fee says he knew the lot was going to be vacant for a year or so, which gave her an idea. 
So it's actually an accidental piece of nature in the middle of the city. And they have to sort of develop a society there for 10 weeks as, as part of their schooling. So I just follow them like they're sort of a new species that enter this habitat. And I'm an anthropologist looking at how, how do they solve conflicts and how do they, what kind of society do they want? Fee's description of herself as an anthropologist venturing into the wild piqued my curiosity. Although, as a resident of AMA, I get to engage in social anthropology all the time out there. Still, I was left wondering, what was Fee hoping or expecting to discover herself when she made the film? I just wanted to see what kind of material are kids made of? What do they do when you leave them alone? What is their strengths and weaknesses? We never get a chance to see how do children act when we're not there. And I know that, of course, I'm there with my camera and they know that I'm there, but mostly they forget. So I get this sort of exclusive look into how do they play with each other and what kind of things are they thinking of and what, what makes them really um, do their best in school, which is a building huts for one thing. So there were a lot of things that I, I couldn't foresee, but I just, I just needed to see what do they do when they're sort of left alone. Because if we don't know that, then we might teach them things that they already know. All of which begs the question, as an anthropologist and a filmmaker, what did Fee learn about the children? What I think is, is so interesting is to see how they form new friendships when they have to, to uh, build something. Then you don't necessarily want to build it with your best friend. You want to build it with someone who's good at building. And then they form new relations uh, also cross gender, and it's it's much they're much more open to seeing each other in new ways when you just put them in a new setting, and that's positive that it you know that children and people can change so much through their surroundings, and also I think it's a, it's it was so obvious that the kids they didn't care if it was raining or you know if it was stormy or if the sun was shining, they would just put on a jacket if that what what's needed. And they are so uh, adaptable to that, really. But most of the time, we as grown-ups, we sort of protect them from the storm. And it's with all of this, it's with good intention, but it's just, it's not making them resilient. And we really still have to think about, we're going to go through stormy weather, so you know, we might as well practice. Speaking of storms, one of the most dramatic moments in the film is an intervention by, well, Mother Nature herself. A huge storm barrels through Denmark, lashing the little green oasis and destroying the kids' camps and shelters. What I was interested in was how do they respond to this challenge that, that everything was torn apart? Do they rebuild it or do they lose courage? That was because they're going to experience this in other you know, metaphorical ways. But it's going to be stormy. So I thought that this was a good chance for me to see how do the kids respond to this? And what's not in the film is actually that some of the other grown-ups, they, they almost panicked. They went, they said, we have to go out to a museum or something. We can't stay here because everything's torn apart. But the kids were more like, wow, let's rebuild it. They, they were just sort of excited about this new challenge. So uh, sometimes we as grown-ups are not as um, adaptable or smart as the kids are. The film is called Rediscovery, and it has a narrator who starts by saying something has been lost for generations, 
something that you must rediscover. In a sense, it's meant to be Mother Nature addressing the children, but the narrator is also addressing us, the audience. In other words, while the children are discovering nature for the first time, for adults watching it, the film seems to be reminding us, warning us even, to rediscover nature. This is a film about, you know, that's children in nature, but it's actually made for grown-ups to revisit what it feels like to sit in the tallest tree, what it feels like when it's raining on your cheeks and you're still working outside, what what it smells like, you know, to revive these um, experiences because they're so far away from our everyday lives. And maybe that detachment from our senses is uh, part of the problem of climate crisis is that that's why we let it, the biodiversity is dropping because we didn't even notice it was there. So I I really wanted to sort of make a film that could make us remember both the grown-ups that see it and then they could encourage the kids to come out because the kids, they can't decide over their everyday lives. So the grown-ups have to sort of um, make that frame for them. And for me, there's another really important line of narration. This is now your classroom. It implies that in order to educate children about the natural world and about sustainability, it's not enough to put it in a textbook. I think that it's so important that you learn with your whole body. Sometimes you read things in a book, you need to read things and know what's going on, but you also need to experience it and you need to experiment and try things out and build things and make a thought come to life. And so I just think it's a question of balance that, you know, the education system has become way too academic. So we need to balance it again. And so that's also part of why I think it was interesting to film them doing crafts a lot just to see, but this is something they can do and they easily, you know, all the girls have power tools. There's also some kind of stereotyping that happens in in conventional schools where the rooms are, the, the rooms invite to a certain way of acting and a certain way of learning. And those classrooms are made for industrialization. And we're in another time of age now where we need the kids to find out what can I do and what do I feel passionate about and what do I want to do to achieve my goal. We don't want them all to be the same baked biscuits coming out of the oven. We really want them to be different. But the classrooms and the whole architecture is not inviting this kind of uh, teaching. You may have noticed Fee say that the children in the movie used power tools to build their caves and camps. And I've got to say, having been raised in Britain's risk-averse health and safety culture, the sight of kids using saws and knives and electric drills and climbing trees, sometimes all at once, came as something of a surprise. I'd assume that was perfectly normal in Denmark. But it turns out, it's just as shocking to see here too. You know, this is the most um, sensational thing in the film is really the kind of freedom that they get. But I was thinking if I'd made this film in the 70s, nobody would lift an eyebrow. Everyone would just think this is normal. This is just a day in the school. It's, it's because we've changed so much that we want to protect the kids so much that it's sort of crazy to see someone in the top of a tree. In fact, Fee believes something has changed in the culture here in Denmark. All the playgrounds have to be soft and you can't hit yourself anywhere. Don't break an arm. And, you know, you, if you fall, you'll fall softly. So all this kind of protection is, of course, made out of goodwill. 
but it also sort of um you know we, we we don't have the same contact with our bodies so i think it's important to feel that when something is hard of course i don't want someone to get killed falling down from a tree but you know it's like there's two extremes and we've landed in this the soft overprotected extreme there's another callback to the past in fee's choice of narrator the danish actor Jutta Albildström. At the film's premiere, Jutta received a standing ovation, a bouquet of flowers, and, it being her 85th birthday, a heartfelt rendition of Happy Birthday. She is like the grand old lady of green transition in Denmark, but not a lot of people know that, not even people who've been here all their lives. But she's been building sustainable buildings and making an ecological house and... Uh, talking about uh, sustainability for her whole life. I really wanted her to be this voice because I felt there was sort of a melancholy, a double thing, because she, what people know her for is her children's theatre. But there, there is uh, a more melancholy side to her because now she looks back at what did we achieve and she doubts that they achieved so much. But I, I just I wanted her to be that voice because she would have the double feeling in it. Rediscovery had its world premiere at CPH Docs, and it was selected to compete for the Docs Award, which, among other things, rewards films with a strong personal vision and cinematic qualities. And that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. For me, one of the film's most obvious reference points are the movies of the great American auteur, Terence Malick. Rediscovery got a rapturous reception, and I asked V how she thought audiences had reacted to it. You know, people are a bit surprised at how much kids can do by themselves, which is um, which is just interesting because we all think that they need, they need grown-ups more than they really do, maybe. And that's kind of anxiety-provoking. But I think that, that people have been touched by, by the way the children sort of fall into nature or they sort of, um, yeah... They, they remember their own childhood. I think that's probably what, what moves the audience is that they remember, oh, I used to do that. Why, did, why don't I ever go out anymore? Why don't I, you know, stay out in nature and sleep outside and stuff like that? They feel that uh, life sort of passed by and they forgot that this was once was important. Uh, I think that, that that's what they feel too when they watch the film. The film's final shot, captured by a drone rising from the ground, reveals the little green patch of land where the children spent ten weeks, surrounded by grim industrial buildings. The shot feels deliberate and overtly political. Well, the interesting thing is that some people, it's like, is the glass half empty or half full? So some people see it as, wow, can you really, it feels like nature and it's just this little spot in a concrete jungle that's amazing. And other people feel, oh, this is going to disappear because there's concrete coming in from all sides. So it's it's a shot that you could interpret both ways. Truth is that it's disappeared. All the, the trees were cut down and now it's a temporary institution for kids. So in Denmark, we start building by you know removing all the green stuff. Indeed, for Fee, one of the key messages of her film is that there's a disconnect in our relationship with nature, that we've sort of lost touch with it and need to rediscover it. 
when we talk about a green city, it's important to note that there are still no insects because we don't want bees in our in our parks. I talked to a gardener that's in charge of a park that I walk through every morning with my kids about, you know, can we plant something that would provide something for insects? And he says, but people don't want bees. They're afraid of bees. So there's there's this disconnect all the time. It looks nice, but it's dead. And it looks green, but when you look closer, there's nothing in it. So I think we need to re-educate ourselves outside. Rediscovery is at once hopeful and slightly ominous. And it leaves me wondering, is the director herself optimistic? I'm doubtful, but I choose to be optimistic because I have two kids. So I think it's my responsibility to to give them hope and be positive. And hope is not, in this context, a passive thing. Hope is active. You have to go out and change the world. You have to be the change. I mean, it's not something that's going to come by itself at all. So um, I, I'm, I'm doubtful, but I'm, I choose to be optimistic. That was Fiambo, the director of Rediscovery, or to give it its Danish title, Genopdelsen. In our show notes, you can find a link to the film's homepage, where you'll find news about future screenings. Coming up in part two, we head across town to discuss life in one of Denmark's most notorious neighbourhoods, with the director of a remarkable new film about it. But first this. Hi, I'm Peter Stanners, and I'm the host of The Danish Debate, another podcast on mother tongue media. I'm taking a deep dive into Danish society and politics ahead of the upcoming general election. We're talking climate, the media, immigration, and so much more. Find The Danish Debate on your favorite podcast app. Now back to Archipelago. Wolfland, or Ulverland in Danish, is a documentary directed by the Copenhagen-based filmmaker Olivia Chambirus. Shot over the course of three years, it's a deeply personal slice of life from the perspective of children and teenagers living around Blogarsplads, a square in the northern Copenhagen district of Nærbro. Like Rediscovery, Wolfland is set in a specific location, but deals with complex, universal themes, including cultural identity. Indeed, far from being a film about Copenhagen's most notorious neighbourhood, it's instead a film about figuring out who you are. I sat down with Olivia in the public library facing Blogarsplads, which is why in the background you'll hear kids playing and getting excited about new books. I began by asking Olivia to summarise Wolfland, and the neighborhood it's set in. It is a portrait of the area seen through the children's eyes, but it's mostly a film just about childhood. I started out wanting to make a film in Nabu in general, and then I kind of narrowed it down to here because this is where everything was happening in my life and the kids that I got to know. And I just think, you know, it is a very special area. It really is because you have, you know, you have the lakes on one side and you have giant Nørrebrogel, giant Oberlevaden, giant Tainsvai. And in this square, it's actually so safe for kids to be by themselves and to not constantly be watched by grown-ups. Given the neighborhood's notoriety, audiences might be forgiven for thinking that the film's title is a veiled reference to outlaws. 
Turns out, it's much more innocuous. There's a scout boy who's sitting on the square. He lives here, right, on the square. And in Denmark, when you're a scout, you're called like a wolf pup. And there's a wolf law, you know. So the film was actually going to be called The Wolf Law, but we felt that we wanted to change the title so it referred more to like a specific place. And Wolfland can be both Blogosplatz, but also kind of just the area of childhood where children have governance over what's happening, you know, when the parents aren't there. Wolfland is a deeply personal film for a number of reasons, not least because Olivia was on home turf throughout the shooting of the film. I've been living here in my 20s where I've been going out and partying and coming home really, really late. And and I've never, ever felt unsafe here. Actually, this is the area where I felt the most safe in Copenhagen. Obolevaden, which is right behind us, divides uh, Nørrebro from Frederiksberg. And when I would walk my dog at night, I would always walk him at Nørrebro because the Nørrebro side, because there's a sense of community here. Like I feel if anything ever happened and I yelled, someone would like open a window. And I'm, I don't necessarily feel that with Frederiksberg. Olivia says that while living near Blogasplas, she had seen all the kids, but naturally she'd had no reason to interact with them. But she did have a dog. You can probably guess the rest. I was walking my dog in Hentstausen's Park, which is also right nearby. And I met Mohammed, who's one of the kind of the characters that have more time on in the film, and his cousins, and they wanted to pet my dog. We started talking, and they really wanted my phone number so we could go on walks together. And I said yes to that because, like, I did the same when I was a kid. And then very shortly after, they asked, what do you do for a living? And I said, I make films. And they were like, should we make one together? To be fair, they had no idea what they were in for, but that's how it started. And I said, okay, but if we're going to be calling each other and meeting up, I need to meet your families. And so I met all their, like, the, a lot of their families um, and and that's just how it started. So like I've never done any casting. I've never really like sat down and done kind of like extensive research. I just kind of like hit the ground running. And almost everyone in the film is someone I've met right here. We should talk about where right here is. It's the elephant in the room, the wolf pacing the park. You see. There are some important things to recall about Nerbro in general, and the area around Blogarsplatz in particular. One is that it's Copenhagen's most diverse district, today home to people from dozens of cultures and ethnicities. Not only is Nerbro densely populated, it also has high rates of unemployment and gang violence. For many people outside the neighbourhood, and certainly outside Copenhagen, Nerbro is now synonymous with gangs, crime and immigration. One of Wolfland's charms is that it refuses to get drawn into that debate. The last summer I was filming, there was actually like a really heated conflict and there was a lot of shootings in Nerabu in general. And you could also sense that here on the square. Like you can, if you live here, you can like, almost everyone who lives here can like just sense walking through how the gangs are doing with each other. But the reason why I chose not to bring that in is it's because it's such like such a heated and saturated subject at the same time. And I felt like that would just take over. Like I can't, I couldn't, I didn't feel this film could like tell as strongly as I feel it does about this movement the kids have and their thoughts. If you also impose these kind of grown up issues 
And with the gangs also comes automatically a conversation about immigration. And it was just really meant like a lot to me to be able to make a film that tells about our everyday lives, like everything else. So this one time we can talk about the fact that there's chickens in the yards and the kids grow tomatoes and they know all the different little secret ways to get from one yard to another. And I thought that was more important. In fact, there's only one moment in the film when gangs are mentioned. It's the first time we see Mohammed, the cheeky young boy who, in a way, is the star of the show. It's clear he's just been asked what he wants to be when he grows up. He says he wants to be a good man, waits a beat, and adds, or maybe a gangster. It's a nod to the notoriety of Nabro, but the only one in the movie. Olivia says she never set out to play with audience expectations. I put that in because it's you know, making a film about kids, especially when they're 10, 11, 12 and above, they're really kind of like, I see all their games and all their playing is like a constant, constant work to f- to figure out who are you? Like, if I hit someone this hard, like, do they cry? And how does that make me feel? And how do I solve that? And like, so for me, it's actually, you know, when Mohammed says he wants to be a good man or a gangster, I think it actually says something really positive about that he's aware of his own his own becoming. Indeed, most of the children in the film are dealing with dual identity and exploring who they are. The character who appears to be struggling the most is Sarsan. Born in Denmark to Iranian parents, he returned with them to Iran for a while before moving back to Copenhagen. And when we first see him, he's dressed as a cowboy and riding a horse through Blogars Plus. Box office gold, as they say. Indeed, When Olivia herself first laid eyes on him, one summer's night several years ago, she knew that he had to be in her movie. I walked into the kiosk that's right on the square, and it was packed with people. And, you know, it was both those people that some might assume are the criminals. I don't know if they are. And then, you know, young people being drunk and all kinds of people just mixed up. And then in the middle of that tiny space on an ice cream refrigerator was sitting Sasan, dressed as a cowboy, because he is a cowboy, and playing his guitar and singing. And I just thought, this is amazing, you know? Like, and, and I talked to him, and he was really eager to be in the film. Through Sasan's complicated relationship with his heritage, we see both the beauty and the burden of identity. And given Olivia's own upbringing, you start to understand not only how a character like Sasan appealed to her, but also how personal her movie is. I was born in Sweden, but my parents uh, were there technically political refugees from Poland, and they came shortly before I was born. So, like, I grew up in a very Polish home where my parents were just finding themselves uh, in the Swedish culture. And in, in the 80s, there was a much larger gap between Swedish and Polish culture. We would go to Poland in the summer vacations for a few months each summer, and In Poland, I wasn't Polish, you know, and in Sweden, I wasn't really considered fully Swedish. And, you know, growing up, it was I thought I thought it was quite shameful to be Polish because Polish people are mainly cleaners and 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 workers like with a really low salary. And, you know, my parents didn't speak the language properly and kids want to just blend in and be like everyone else. And we ate weird food at home and went to church, you know, like these were really shameful things growing up for me. But I think that, like, it's made me who I am and it's made me really strong and I'm so, so grateful for it. An adolescent on the cusp of adulthood, Sarsan is the oldest person 
in a film that's almost devoid of parents or grown-ups. We glimpse them from afar, hear them off-screen. Olivia says her intention was to give screen time and space to the children, and to see what came of it. For two and a half years, I've just never left the house without the camera in my bag. Like, always had it. And of course, I've made kind of like set up meetings with the kids. But you could set up a meeting and then that would just peter out into nothing. And then I could be going to the food store, like kind of tired just to get some milk or something. And suddenly I meet them in the yard and they're doing something amazing. And it's also helped a lot that I live here because the kids live here. So they know like, oh, have you seen that like those benches over there, they were removed or this like uh, bike shed burnt down. And the fact that I know this area and I've been here almost nonstop means that I also know that. So we've also been able to kind of like explore the area together. Having her camera on her constantly also provided some delightfully unguarded moments. Like when Sasan is blow drying his hair one evening and singing along to the 1985 charity single, We Are The World, with its decidedly on point chorus. We are the world. We are the children. He enjoys that song and he was getting ready for a concert that he was actually going to play in this building we're in. He put that song on. It was a really true moment. And that's why it's beautiful. Like I would never put that song into my film. But the fact that it comes from him, I have a lot of respect for that. And it was also like a playful thing because the whole film is kind of like we are the world, we are the children. It balances like and we're trying to not make it that. Like Fiambo's film Rediscovery, Wolfland received its world premiere at CPH Docs this year. And it was nominated for the Nordic Docs Award, which celebrates the best and brightest non-fiction filmmaking from the Nordic countries. How, though, does Olivia think general audiences have received it? For sure, one of the main reactions from adults on this film is that they say they like, oh, this reminds me of my childhood, you know, like, because, and it reminds me of mine as well, because we didn't have, you know, obviously cell phones and I would come home from school. My mom would send me out in the area in Stockholm we lived in, and I would just kind of guess when dinner was. And I think that there's such power in letting children find their own way and letting them, uh, letting them take ownership of where, where the area they call home. Uh, and I, th- I think that maybe today we are also having a culture in Denmark where we're overseeing our children more and more and more, and their longer hours in different institutions and so on. And I really, truly feel that, like, Blogos Plus area has that power of, like, how wonderful is that to let your seven-year-old out the door and you know they'll be safe and they have friends and they can find all these things about the area that I never knew, you know, or that you never knew. I hope my children can grow up in this way. Her answer recalls something Fee said about her film, that it reminds audiences of their own childhood, and how they used to stay out all night in nature and build camps and so on. But Olivia thinks it has a wider appeal, not only because it's about childhood, but because it raises issues that are by no means unique to Copenhagen. This area is very, very unique, but in terms of integration, I think these areas kind of by now exist in almost every Western or European major city. So I think it's like applicable to that. And I think a lot of people who live in these kind of areas kind probably like they have a lot of love for that area, you know, and they see all the everyday things that happen that has value to them. So internationally, I do think it is, it's, it can, it can work. Olivia believes that how her film is received in Denmark depends on where people live and what their experience is of people who don't look like them. By avoiding the hot button issues, Olivia says her film can contribute to the debate 
in another potentially more valuable way. We live in a time right now where what we need the most is nuances. And I think we're working against nuances in general in the, well, in the world, the Western world and in media. And I think that what I'm trying to do with this is nuance it by just showing everyday life, you know. And I hope that people will be receptive to this because it is in no way intended as like a film against racism. I do think that, you know, the way we can fight racism or the way we can fight this kind of black and white mindset that we're all getting into now, like not just like the bad guys, but also the good guys, right, is that we need to nuance it, you know. And I've had a, some people who, who are not familiar with Arabic families or don't live in this area. They ask me like super general questions about these families because they are curious. But also by asking such general questions, it kind of shows me that like how unnuanced their thinking is. The young girls, you know, are they are they forced to put on the hijab? And it's just like, I don't want to be difficult, but literally that depends on family, from one family to the next, from one girl to the next, you know. And I think, yeah, I hope in its own little way, this film can help nuance that a little bit. That was Olivia Chambiras, the director of Wolfland, one of two remarkable new documentaries about children growing up in Copenhagen. If you go to our show notes, you can find links to the official pages of both films and find out about potential future screenings. And that's all we've got time for. You've been listening to Archipelago, a podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. I've been your host, James Clasper, and this episode was produced for Mother Tongue Media, a brand new home for English language podcasts in Denmark. Visit mothertongue.dk to find out more. The music is by two local artists, Squares and Triangles and Scenery. You can find links to their music on our homepage, archipelago.mothertongue.dk. And if you like this episode, please take a minute to review or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Or better still, tell your friends. Many thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>